Well, welcome back in. We're shifting gears a little bit. We're going to get into the EV talk, and I am lucky enough, having done this quite a few times now, to have a guy that I always enjoy having on, Paul Eisenstein, editor at Headlight.News. And, Paul, I, I'm glad to have you, man. I, as a fellow car enthusiast, we see things a touch differently, but I was hoping for a really good, friendly scrap today. Are you up for it? <laughs> well, let's see what we get into. All right. Well, listen, I think... To be fair, arguments all die with agreement, right? Exactly. And I have been reading and reading and reading, and I'm not an EV owner yet. I'm not saying that I won't be. I think one of the things that I've picked up from you in the past that frustrates you is that it largely becomes political when it comes to EVs. You get the entirety of the right reading articles about how it's not a huge ecological advantage, not nearly as cost-effective as they think, but Biden's shoving them down our throats, and it might be killing the auto industry. But here's, here's what I want to challenge you with, and I think this is a hopefully will be a helpful conversation to everybody. I do not find fault with the electric vehicle. I wouldn't mind owning one. I haven't seen one yet that I was fall so in love with I wanted to buy it. I wasn't against hybrids. I don't know where they went, but we can come back to that. Can we agree that at we're at the point now where you can't really make a quantitative argument that EVs are going to save the planet? At best, it's kind of a, at least in the short to midterm, it's a bit of a push. So no, I, I, I can't agree with that at all. You cannot. Uh, no. Now, there, there are some trade-offs early on. Uh, you know, we, we're in a stage where we're still digging up a lot of minerals, mm -hmm. uh, so that does impact the advantages of the EV. But we're going to have the same thing happen that we've had happen with every other vehicle. You're going to start seeing more and more recycling, in this case, of the, the batteries and, and other components. Uh, Everything I see says that by the late uh, the late 30s, uh, the vast majority of the material like uh, lithium and cobalt and nickel and what have you will be recycled, much like the lead in the batteries that you have in today's gasoline vehicles. Uh, 80 to 90 percent of the lead that's in your battery today was probably in another vehicle a, a few years before that and another vehicle before that, and another vehicle okay. before that, going back and back and back. So the higher, the more vehicles that EVs that get out there, uh, the more materials you'll have that will be recycled for the next generation of EV. All right. And so each time that here, happens, Paul, let's each say, time that happens, you're you're winding up with an improvement in in uh, its impact on the environment. Fine, accepted. I accept that that response, and I I will concede one point to the the Paul Einstein column of this category. But here here's where I'm going to try and, and loop around the back and get you. What we know, despite batteries getting more efficient, is that there's a break-even point, and eventually they will get cheaper and they will get more efficient. But physicists have said there's a limit to what we can do with these batteries. So now that I own an EV and I plug it into a power grid, by the same, the same conversation, it must be mentioned that the DOD had a 300-page report three years ago about how incredibly vulnerable our power grid is. It's massively outdated. And if we were to experience a terrorist attack to our power grid, much less just a straight outage, we, we might all be dead in six months. So how can we go from a point at which our power grid can't really handle what we're doing now to one that is supposed to support 50 to 70 percent of the vehicles on the road 15 years from now? They all have to be plugged in. Well, it actually won't be that fast because uh, people get confused here. They, they think that we're going to be at 50 percent of the vehicles on the road, say, by 2030, the target for uh, the Biden administration. That's of the new vehicle sales. 
That's not of all the vehicles on the road. Remember, there's a fleet of almost 300 million vehicles out there. And even if you had 100% of all the vehicles sold this year being EVs, uh, with normal scrappage rates and everything, it would take us till into the mid-2040s before everything was electric. But at this point, Paul, if 2040, which is now 17 years away, if that happened, and I know that's that's hyperbole, we know that that's not actually no, it, it's responsible. No, it the 50s. It'll be in the but 50s. But even in 2050, period. if we were all to plug those cars into the grid, we could end up in a situation where we would be doing a heavy amount of rationing on power. Power is still generated in most places by fossil fuel. There's not enough wind. There's not enough solar. And even if there was, there's not enough battery banks to keep those that energy there. So what is the problem with hybrids? That was an idea that kind of came and started to succeed and then fairly quickly it now has gone out the window. What? Why is the hybrid no, it, not a thing? First of all, it hasn't gone out the window. Quite the opposite. Uh, virtually every vehicle that Toyota offers is now a hybrid. And Toyota is among several manufacturers that actually sees hybrids and plug-in hybrids, as well as hydrogen vehicles, remaining a major part of the fleet through well into the 2030s. Uh, so, no, you're going to see almost all vehicles are going to have some level of hybridization, whether it be mild, standard, or plug-in hybrid, through the 2030s. So, no, quite the opposite. As a matter of fact, uh, look, the new Corvette E-Ray is a hybrid. Uh, increasingly, you have vehicles like, for example, the Ford F-150 hybrid. That's one of the most popular powertrains that Ford offers on that. So, no, you're wrong on that. Uh, I'm sorry to call you out that way. Well, I don't but think hybrids, that, hybrids. I, I think that the uh, the devil's in the details. I don't think I'm wrong unless the hybrid is exempt from the 2035 mandate that the White House is trying to to install. So what I hear you saying is the hybrid is still a very relevant thing, but are hybrids ever going to be exempted from this, the proposed plan? We'll see what happens. Uh, that's, that's a dozen years out. So is it, is it a true statement, Paul, that in your, and you, obviously you've been doing this for a long time and you're a car lover. Mm -hmm. we, we have, is it true that we have never really seen combustion engines be as efficient and reliable as they are today? Uh, yeah, but that's, uh, that doesn't say a lot if you're talking about the combustion engine by itself. If you're talking about hybrids, it gets better and better. Uh, and then plug-in hybrids, where you can run in a significant percentage of your time uh, in an all-electric mode, depending on how much you drive on a particular day, uh, that gets even better. So there are various solutions, and there will continue to be a debate, I would expect, through the end of this decade, maybe even into the 30s, on whether we want to go 100% all-electric in new vehicles or we want to see some hybrid and plug-in hybrids remain. But the bottom line is, by the end of this decade, uh, virtually every vehicle out there will either be all-electric or some form of hybrid. Now, let's get back to a couple other things you talked about with the grid. Uh, first of all, the fastest-growing source of energy in the United States right now, when you're talking the grid, are renewables, wind, solar, geothermal. Some of those continue to operate 24-7. Solar obviously does not. Uh, you're starting to see increased use of energy storage systems to level out, and that's still new, but it will grow. Uh, as to where you get the power for your vehicle, uh, first of all, in some of the states where you have the strongest EV demand, that's also where you have 
some of the highest uh, renewables. Texas, of all things, gets a huge percentage of its power from renewables, believe it or not, uh, including wind. And you, uh, you're seeing that state also surprisingly have a huge growth in its EV population. Now, you also see EVs generally charged up at night, where you have the biggest surplus of energy. If you charge them during the day, sure, you may run into a problem. But 80 to 90 percent of people charge their vehicles at home, and 80 to 90 percent of that charging is done during off-peak when there's often a surplus of energy. Well, okay, so that part is interesting. I think that and a lot of us get caught in a very binary situation where we are largely in the echo chambers of the news cycles and the social feeds that we, we always read. The, the argument that raged on years and years ago about wind and solar versus you know fossil fuel generated electricity largely was that there wasn't enough battery bank to store the, the energy in Texas. They have an advantage because they don't have mountains. They don't have nearly as much trees in many of those areas. And wind is fairly convenient in a relative sense. There's other areas where that doesn't work. I mean, we live in the in the third, second or third cloudiest state in the United States. Solar is not really the same option here on a large scale that it is in others. So how now, if you if the government mandates this, how does the battery part of the world, the battery manufacturing part of the world, how are they asked to bifurcate between making batteries for vehicles versus making batteries for long-term energy storage? How do you ration that? Well, first of all, one thing interesting to consider there's enough solar power here that Ford Motor Company has partnered with DTE that all of the energy it uses in the state of Michigan, including all of its factories, will come from renewables. It's already made that partnership. So that tells you that there's plenty of renewable here if Ford is ready to commit to it for its entire manufacturing and other operations in the state of Michigan. Secondly, uh, how do you bifurcate? You don't have to bifurcate. The amount of battery manufacturing is growing at a re- an amazing pace. Uh, we will go from barely 40 gigawatt hours in 2022 to a terawatt in the U.S. by 2030. That's mm-hmm. a 25-fold increase. Paul, you're such a reasonable guy that it's hard to argue. But I'm not totally sold, but you're, uh, you piqued my interest. We've got to keep doing this. I'm, you're, you're getting me there, but I'm not all the way there yet. Okay. <laughs> I'll talk to you soon, pal. Talk back, to you then. Back in just a few.